You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Scott Harris was named the 10th general manager in San Francisco Giants history last November, hoping to take his hometown team back to the top of the baseball mountain. Harris began his career in the commissioner's office before moving to Chicago in 2012 to become the Cubs' director of baseball operations. As part of Theo Epstein's front office, Harris was part of the team that ended the Cubs' 108-year championship drought, a night he and his colleagues will surely never forget. I had a chance to sit down with Harris at Scottsdale Stadium in Arizona before camps were closed due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed his rise through the baseball ranks, the challenges of working for a team while trying to finish a business degree, that feeling of waiting for Game 7, and much, much more. As we wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Giants General Manager Scott Harris. Scott, you grew up in Redwood City, California, about 25 miles south of San Francisco. You've said you've Grew up in a split household in terms of baseball. What was your uh, What was your favorite team? Uh, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> my My dad grew up uh, a huge Cubs fan. Uh, he tried to sneak out to the bleachers of Wrigley Field whenever he could growing up um, outside of Chicago. Uh, my mom grew up in San Francisco. She was a big Giants fan. Uh, so it, it's funny. My My brother is who is two years older than me. Grew up a Giants fan, and uh, and then I was actually born on um, my dad's birthday, and he just sort of stole me and stole my allegiances and made sure that I was a Chicago sports fan. So I grew up a Cubs fan. My brother grew up uh, a Giants fan, and my sister um, found a way to be diplomatic enough to both parents. Um, but yeah, it, it, it made for some really interesting arguments when my brother and I were growing up about which team was better and who had a better offseason and you know which team was on the cusp of, of winning a World Series and it was usually the Giants not the Cubs at that time. You were a soccer player and a lacrosse player growing up what was your peak as a baseball player? Uh, my peak I think I stopped playing in middle school um, my carrying tool was speed I was an undersized fast kid and so that uh, skill set translates a little better to lacrosse and soccer. Um, it is one of my bigger regrets that I stopped playing baseball so young, um, especially now that I'm devoting my life to it. You graduated from UCLA in 2009. I think both Cole and Bauer were pitching there at the right, time. Right. Uh, degree in economics, studied abroad in London along the way. Was a career in baseball always the goal for you? No. I, I didn't think someone like me had access to this type of profession. I noticed that the model for a Major League GM was starting to change um, when you see people like Theo Epstein carrying a World Series trophy, covered in champagne on TV, you start to ask questions. You start to ask about that person's background and start to realize like, hey, maybe this is possible. Maybe I, I could, you know, find my way into a front office. Um, in college, I was sort of floating towards a finance track um, and I studied abroad at the, the London School of Economics. And I actually remember, um, a moment I was studying for a final there and I was staring at a bunch of economic graphs about um, oil reserves and realized I, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to have a hopelessly boring life if I do. Um, and I went to the library computers and I wrote uh, an email to my parents actually saying I'm going to pursue a job in baseball until um, 
someone definitively slams the door shut and proves that I, I don't have access to this type of job. I actually signed that email, um, it was in 2007, I signed the end of the email, um, hopefully this email is memorable in 10 years. And sure enough, it became very memorable in, in 10 years. Did they print it out or they still have it? They still have it, yes. Wow, that's great. Al Rosen, former MVP and executive of the year, was an early mentor for you. How did that relationship come about? Yeah, Mr. Rosen um, was an irreplaceable figure in my life. Um, when I decided to pursue a career in baseball, I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know a soul. And typically, you need you know an uncle or a grandfather or someone connected to the game to get access to these type of jobs. Um, I didn't have that, so I just wrote a letter to every team, every president and GM, and I just started calling anyone, a friend of a friend, who had um, some connection to the game. And fortunately, my grandmother actually ran into Al Rosen uh, one day. And uh, if you've ever met my grandmother, she's one of the most persistent women I've ever met in my life. And she demanded that Mr. Rosen have lunch with me one day. And so I drove out from college out to, to Palm Desert and had lunch with Mr. Rosen. And for whatever reason, he took a liking to me and, and he became a mentor of mine and, and he helped me get my foot in the door in the game. And, and uh, he uh, became, you know, such a great source of advice and guidance and um, someone I could really relate to as I was growing up in the game. That first foot in the door was a business internship with the Nationals in 2008. You went on two years later to get a baseball ops internship with the Reds in 2010. How did those two internships come about and what was it like to... to get that first experience in baseball? Yeah, I, uh, I wrote a letter to, to every team. Uh, I got a few responses back, not many, um, but I brought my responses back to Mr. Rosen and I said, hey, here are the teams that responded. Um, what do you think I should do? He said, you could take one of those or um, let me reach out to the, to the Nationals on your behalf and, and see if there's anything available there. Um, and he helped me land a, a business affairs internship with the Nationals, which wasn't what I wanted to do, but in this game, you just need to find a, a way to get your foot in the door. Uh, so I took my finals early um, in college, my junior year. I, I flew out to, to DC, um, literally made zero dollars over the course of the summer. Um, it was a totally unpaid internship. The only way I made money is I was throwing batting practice to the corporate sponsors that would rent out the, the ballpark. <laughs> um, and uh, so that paid some of the bills. Um, but it was a great opportunity to get my foot in the door. And, and while I was with the Nationals, they started uh, to let me work on, on things like arbitration cases, which really um, you know, cracked the door to baseball operations open um, ever so slightly. So you get that chance with the Reds. Do you start to really get a taste for what baseball ops is about during that internship? Yeah. At the end of my internship with the, the Nationals, uh, I had to go back to college to, to graduate. I kept writing letters, kept calling people, and then it really started to heat up in October of 2009 uh, when I started getting all of those you know, intern tests and questionnaires and pitch charting tests and everything. And I just decided at that point, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take the first offer. Um, because I was so tired of the process and I just, I, I wanted so badly to get started. Um, the Reds uh, and Nick Kral were, were the first to, to offer me a job and I just took it on the spot. <laughs> to be honest, I'd never been to Ohio before. I wasn't quite sure where in Ohio Cincinnati actually was, <laughs> but I took the job, um, moved, moved out there and uh, it was one of the, the best opportunities I, I could have asked for because it was a smaller organization that was somewhat short staffed at at the, uh, that point, and um, 
while jockey Bob Miller, um, Nick Kroll uh, trusted me to expand my role and, and to really tackle some projects that were typically reserved for you know full-time employees. But they trusted me, and that um, helped enhance my development at a very young age. Your next job was with Major League Baseball in the commissioner's office, uh, coordinator of Major League Operations. At the same time, you were also attending Columbia Business School. Right. That's, uh, that seems like a lot to do for one person at, uh, at a young age. Right. Um, so in September of 10, uh, I was offered a full-time job in New York um, with the commissioner's office. So I moved to New York, and um, shortly after I took that job, I applied to Columbia Business School. And to be honest, I only applied as a backup plan. Because uh, sometimes these jobs in, in baseball ops lead to dead ends. Or sometimes um, you are um, struggling to make ends meet and you decide, you know, hey, i got to find a new career, a new industry. At that time, I figured, you know, this is the time of my life where I can actually uh, get away with not sleeping at all. And so I applied to, to Columbia, um, got in and, and started working uh, at the commissioner's office and then going to, to school on the side. And it was actually a great time in my life. I wasn't sleeping a ton, but I was really enjoying myself in New York. Um, I was, I think, the youngest one in that program at Columbia, so I was an easy target for some of the older um, students. It, it was actually the executive program. But as soon as I got to Columbia, I realized, um, you know, this isn't just a backup plan. Um, they, they're teaching me uh, new ways to attack problems. They're teaching me how to think. They're te- teaching me how to uh, adopt different communication styles to... Um, uh, tailor your message to different audiences um, and it gave me access to a whole network of people who were doing amazing things in different industries but shared some of the same leadership challenges as I would eventually face um, if, if I were to you know, climb the ladder in, the, in this industry. So you were in graduate school but I've, I've heard people refer to working in the league office at MLB as baseball grad school. What were your responsibilities there? Um, yeah, my time in, in New York at the league office uh, was extremely valuable because it is, I think, the only um, pocket in this game where you actually have access to all of the other teams. And uh, at Major League Baseball, I was in contact with almost every team every week um, as they were working through rules issues or transactions or trades. And so I really got a firsthand account of, you know, what each organization does well, what they struggle with, and it allowed me to compile uh, a list of best practices that really help um, um, me develop into uh, a much older executive than I actually was, than my birth certificate uh, suggested, because I actually got access to um, a collection of experiences that I wouldn't have been able to um, outside of the league. But uh, my, my core responsibilities were working with, with Jeff Pfeiffer on um, rules interpretations, on uh, approving transactions and contracts, um, and viewing the game at the league level and trying to make sure that we are promoting uh, you know, competitive balance across the league, um, which is a great opportunity for me. Um, the only challenge I will say is you, you sort of feel like Switzerland when you're at the league office. Right. Uh, you don't really have a team to, to pull for every night. You don't have a group of players to interact with and and um, help shape their developments. And so it was a great experience to be there for two years, but uh, I, I always knew I was going to get back to a team at some point. That was my next question was you had gotten a taste of, of the club side with the Nationals and certainly with the Reds working with baseball ops. So as you're at MLB, there was never a thought of, of staying in Switzerland, so to speak. You always knew that that you wanted to head back to the club side? 
I think so. I'm an extremely competitive person, and so uh, that seems to be a trend among front office executives. Right. Right. So I. I I sort of needed to get back to a team and, and start competing for something. So you joined the Cubs as director of baseball operations after the 2012 season, working with Theo Epstein, Jed Hoyer. How did that come about? It came about a lot earlier than I expected. Uh, I was a year into business school at the time. Um, I was two years into the job in New York. I expected to be there for several more years. Um, however, as you know, many executives, I'm sure, have told you in this game, sometimes opportunities come a lot earlier than you expect them to. Um, I actually was um, in school and got a call um, from the Cubs shortly after Theo took over um, in, in Chicago, and they asked me to come interview for director of baseball ops. Um, and it was actually the same week that Hurricane Sandy hit New York, so the airports were closed, but I took the first flight out once the airports opened and didn't really know what to expect. Um, but as soon as you walked into the doors in Chicago, you started to realize this is a, a pretty compelling culture here. Every every person I talked to, you know, whether it was Theo, Jed, Jason, Randy, Shiraz, everyone there, um, they would always talk about what it's going to be like when we win the World Series. It wasn't if we win the World Series or, you know, we hope to win the World Series. It was this is what it's going to feel like when we win the World Series. And, you know, as a 25-year-old kid, like, how? How could you not want to be a part of that? And so I'm so, so grateful that they gave me the opportunity. Your dad was probably pretty excited too. Yeah, actually, so I, I got the offer um, to go to Chicago and I, I called my parents. Uh, I called my dad. Um, he, he just said, yes, take the job, drop out of high school, <laughs> take the job immediately. Uh, and then I called my mom and she said, you can't take it now. I know it's a really exciting opportunity. You can't take it. You have to finish school. Like, this will be there. It's like, mom, this this job is not going to be <laughs> right. available later. Um, so I promised you can't her that, defer this job. Right. So I promised her I would finish business school um, in uh, in Chicago somehow if I took this job. And then I, I walked into the dean's office at Columbia Business School and dropped out. So you were 25 years old. You were once quoted uh, saying of Theo and Jed, from day one, they've never seen age. They just saw ability. Do you think that's partially because both of them experienced such success at a young age? I mean, Theo was the GM of the Red Sox at 28. Yeah, they both, both Theo and Jed have a long history of empowering young executives, um, and I think that has rewarded them, um, in, in certainly in Boston for Theo and in Chicago, and then also uh, for Jed in San Diego. Um, and it's hard to express the appropriate level of gratitude to, to them for, for giving me this opportunity, but absolutely, I think their opinions on um, you know, hiring processes are certainly shaped by the, the opportunities that they were given at young ages. Theo's cited repeatedly your incredible work ethic. Both of your parents are doctors. Did you learn that work ethic from them? Absolutely. I mean, when your parents are um, doing, you know, 10-hour surgeries and uh, reminiscing about the hours they worked in residency, um, it, it convinces you two things. One, that uh, you can always work a little harder than you are, and two, that uh, they're actively trivializing everything you're doing in baseball because they're actually saving lives and making the world a better place, whereas, you know, we're just trying to find a better shortstop. <laughs> uh, but no, they, they definitely um, passed down their work ethic to, uh, to my brother Chris, uh, my sister Casey, and, and me, and I'm very thankful for it. Theo's Cubs front office, much like his Red Sox group, was known for hijinks and pranks and all sorts of things. What was the best one you either saw or were a part of? Wow. Saw or were a part of? I 
I was usually the target. Uh, <laughs> just the, 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 the problem of being the young guy, right? Yeah, I was, I was the young guy, so... Um, good usually, learning for that at Columbia, though, right? Same, yeah, same thing. Yeah, absolutely. They would usually go after me. I, they've made me do several things over the years. Uh, a lot of them I can't disclose on this podcast. Uh, but uh, Theo and Jay both have um, a unique ability to inject banter and camaraderie into a culture in a way that that really feels everyone that really makes everyone who's a part of it feel like they're a part of something special feel like they're working towards the greater good um and sometimes those hijinks that you're you're talking about are you know a great way to create a more inclusive culture um and in a more fun environment for the people that work for them and it went both ways i read i read a quote of yours that said when someone's called the world's greatest leader like leader like Theo is it's important to cut them down to size in Boston I've had a bunch of sort of the Theo tree folks on this podcast and they all talked about in Boston and then ultimately in Chicago that it was it was like being in a fraternity almost right yeah absolutely um, and it's not like that in other places I think every organization is a unique ecosystem and we're unfortunately at the mercy of just the people we work for when we grow up in the game. And I just feel so lucky that the, the people I worked for in, in Cincinnati and New York and Washington and, and Chicago really felt like a core responsibility in their job description was to develop the people around them. Um, and, and Theo absolutely did that. But he didn't just you know shape your ability to evaluate players. He shaped you as a leader. He, he convinced me at every turn that... You know, it's not just about making the right decision. It's about including everyone in the decision and making sure that the workplace is a fun environment and uh, a place you want to go to work to every day. And and I think when other executives refer to it as a fraternity, it's it's a very endearing term as, you know, a place you want to be, a place that, you, you know, you want to um, make the sacrifice in your life that uh, this job requires because you really enjoy going to work every day. You've said that for every trade a team makes, or at least that your team made in Chicago, there were 12 to 14 that you were working on that never came to fruition. We all love the trade deadline. We all love the rumors and the talk. How difficult is the process of actually making a trade? Extremely difficult. And if you talk to some of the uh, more experienced executives in the game, they'll tell you that it didn't always used to be that way. You know, there were more baseball trades out there where, you know, teams were just helping each other address their weaknesses. Now I feel like... Um, the culture is so focused on, you know, creating value wherever you can and winning every trade that it's becoming even more difficult. And so um, I think we work on even more transactions that don't actually get uh, finalized or in the last minute one team pulls out or another team pulls out. But that's part of the fun of it um, because you realize even that even if you have a great idea about a transaction that can make you better and make another team better, um, you still have to... Uh, use excellent judgment throughout the process from, you know, idea to actually actual deployment and, and take it across the finish line in order to actually improve your team. Um, so we are hypersensitive to, you know, even the, uh, you know, seemingly insignificant assumptions throughout the process of, of finalizing a deal. Uh, we've seen in, in certainly in recent months that those are critically important and uh, we have to uh, bring as much focus to the execution of the trade as we do to the idea creation process. Communication is more available now than it's ever been. Texts, emails, cell phones. Can you imagine what it was like to try to work out trades before any of those things existed? 
actually more than most, I used to ask Mr. Rosen when he was the GM of the, the Giants uh, about some of his processes for executing a trade. Um, the last conversation I ever had with Mr. Rosen before he passed away was about a recent trade that we pulled off of the Cubs. Um, he asked me uh, to walk through the timeline of, of the trade. And I remember I you know, walked through it with him and, and um, the detail he was most struck by was the fact that most of it got done via text message and email. He was incredulous that deals could actually happen through text message and email because in his day, it was always a face-to-face meeting. He always wanted to, um, you know, read your facial facial expressions. He wanted to, um, you know, read, you know, some of your body language or how you're answering questions to deduce what is actually happening in your organization and, and try to be able to exploit that. And he couldn't imagine not having those, you know, nonverbal cues to actually make a trade. And uh, it just shows how... how different eras uh, treated similar problems. I always laughed in the, in the movie Moneyball when the scene when Brad Pitt as Billy Bean flew to Cleveland to go into the offices right. of the Indians and Mark Shapiro's behind his desk. There's the whole baseball office department sitting behind Billy. Right. You're watching that going, this never happened. You yeah, know? I, know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you guys see each other face-to-face at the GM meetings, yeah. maybe at the winter meetings, although you're mostly holed up in your own team suite. So face-to-face is really almost a non-existent thing at this point in baseball. Yeah, I always look up executives in um, cities we travel to uh, just to connect with them um, because there are very few people that can relate to some of the day-to-day challenges you face in these jobs so it's fun to catch up with other executives that you maybe have worked with in the past or have gotten to know over the course of um, you know the past few years but other than that other than the GM meetings occasional road trips and the winter meetings we don't really see each other face-to-face all that much you were promoted to assistant GM in January of 2018 what did that mean to you? It meant a lot. I don't think I put much stock in the title. Um, for me, it was never about titles. It was just about um, carving out a meaningful role for myself and knowing at the end of the day that I had an influential voice in an organization. So I think the title was representative of that. Um, but, you know, I'd be lying if I said that that was you know, a defining moment for me in my career. Um, it also was a product of uh, a lot of hard work to get there. Um, specifically, you know, when I went from New York to Chicago, I, I was trying to finish business school while I was working, um, you know, 15-hour days. And one of the sacrifices I had to make was uh, I was attending Kellogg at, at Northwestern, and every spring training I was flying back. I was taking a 1.25 a.m. flight out of Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport every Friday night, Landing in um, Chicago at you know 5:45 in the morning or whatever it was, uh, I would sleep on a on a bench at baggage claim for an hour um, and then hop a bus to Kellogg, go there all day on a Saturday, and then take another red eye back to Phoenix and then work on Sundays. And uh, <laughs> I actually every t- every morning when I would get to O'Hare and I would I'd be about to you know take a nap on the bench at baggage claim, I would shoot a photo of the bench and sent it to my mom because she was the reason I was, you know, finishing business school in this job. And, um, it was a, it was a pretty special moment at my graduation. My family came out and, and my mom found someone to, uh, 
create a business card holder that was an exact replica of that bench so oh, that's it's sitting cool. on my desk and she said you know put this on your desk and it will always serve as a reminder of the sacrifices you've made to get where you are and I think that was the first time that I had a chance to reflect on some of those sacrifices and how they helped me get to where I am no, that's great uh Looking at your bio from last year's Cubs Media Guide, as AGM, you assisted Theo and Jeb with player acquisitions, contract negotiations, player evaluations, oversaw the research and development department, salary arbitration process, baseball operations, financial strategy and planning, and the high-performance department. It's a lot of different areas. Scouting report time. Which area is do you find or feel is your biggest strength? It's a good question. I haven't really thought about it that way because Theo and Jed just intentionally create a flat structure. Um, they, they value five opinions over four, six over five, seven over six. And so they wanted you to work on everything when you were there. Um, and that really helped me you know, develop my f- team building philosophies and, and shape my opinion of players. Um, I think I've tried to at least um, uh, improve my ability to process information from a variety of sources uh, objectively and weigh them appropriately when you're evaluating players. Um, I think that our jobs have grown dramatically over the last five years and and they're much more complex than they used to be. So um, I try not to be an expert in any specific area area because I think... um, you know, thinking of yourself as an expert in one area, you know, say scouting or, or analytics or, um, uh, you know, makeup or na- you name it, uh, leads to bias and it leads to, um, you know, uh, inaccurate uh, weighing of information. So I, I'm hypersensitive to that. I, I try to make sure that, you know, I am viewing all information that is um, provided to me on a player in the proper context and and weighing them appropriately. Even the best players in the game always feel there's some area of their game they can improve upon. What area of your game would you like to improve upon? (laughs) All areas? (laughs) Uh, No, one experience I had in Chicago that really helped shape my evaluative processes was traveling with the team. if anyone is given the opportunity to travel with a major league team, I, I would strongly encourage that you take it. You know, seeing major league players in their most bulletproof states is very valuable, but also seeing them in their most vulnerable states is, is very valuable. It, it, it helps you become a better evaluator. It helps you become a better teammate. It helps you become a better leader. Um, if you can better understand um, the day-to-day stresses in these big leaguers' lives, um, and it helps you build a uh, more cohesive uh, unit in the clubhouse and a better functioning team because I think any executive would tell you that there is intangible value associated with a good clubhouse or a, a dugout that is very supportive of um, their teammates or a group of players that truly in their core believe in putting the team first over the individual. You talked about the confidence that Theo and Jed showed when you first got hired that when we win the World Series. You guys went from 89 losses in 2014 to 97 in 2015. 97 wins. 97 losses. wins, sorry. Thank you, good catch. Uh, what was it like seeing all the hard work actually pay off on the field? It was 
a very special experience um, across a few different dimensions for me because I got to share the experience with my dad who never really expected the Cubs to win anything in his lifetime, much less uh, his son would uh, play a small part in it. Um, I think one moment that sticks out to me is I, I vividly remember sitting in the stands in Cleveland before game two of the World Series and looking up at that gigantic scoreboard left field and seeing that we had six players under the age of 25 in the starting lineup for the World Series. Um, that's pretty special, and it's um, representative of all the hard work that everyone put in in Chicago, all the scouts, all the minor league coaches, um, you know, all the analysts. And for so long, we were so focused on, on building a young core, building a young dynamic uh, core of position players that could one day carry us to, to the next level. And that's when, that's the moment that really stuck out for me, um, you know, beyond obviously the parade and the ring and all that stuff. That, that was really special. That run in October was pretty memorable. All came down to one game, game seven. What were your emotions like during that night? Well, I was a basket case. <laughs> I remember I went to lunch the day of game seven with Jared Porter, who's now with the Diamondbacks. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were sitting across from each other at lunch and not really talking. Neither of us had an appetite. Uh, I sort of felt like I was going to puke because, <laughs> you know, sometimes in, in this game, I think executives overestimate their ability to um, affect team performance in season. But you do have tools to affect team performance, you know, between making trades and, and um, sending players out and calling up different players in the minor leagues. But when you're in the World Series, you truly have no instruments to affect the, the performance on the field at all anymore. It's and, a superstition at that point, right? Yeah, you're basically sitting on your hands and hoping the team's good enough. And, um, you know, through all the twists and turns of Game 7, um, I, uh, I was a basket case. But when we finally won, when we finally, uh, when Riz finally caught the, the final out, um, it was a uh, very memorable scene in, in the clubhouse, you know, um, I think the, the, the first guy I hugged was Jed, and it was just this huge bear hug, and it, it just was a huge sense of uh, accomplishment. I, I will say, though, that um, the moments we're most proud of in Chicago transcend that, that championship. I think um, we're, we're very proud of the culture that you know, Theo and Jed created out there, and, and we're proud of um, how we you know, cobbled together a young core of position players, but how those players really took charge of their own developments and those players are the ones that really uh, you know, went out and took that World Series in, in 2016 and it was just it was fun to think back about every moment um, when you were sitting in a room somewhere um, and the decision was made to, you know, uh, draft Kyle Schwarber or draft Chris Bryant or trade for Jake Arrieta um, it was a huge sense of accomplishment in that clubhouse after the game what was it like for you to give your dad that ring? So I, the I guess it was July of 2017. My my dad and I have the same birthday, so I flew out <laughs> to San Francisco during the All Star break, and I took my dad out to dinner for for our birthday. And um, I had wrapped the box that the ring comes in, um, and I gave it to him at dinner. And and uh, I think he did a quadruple take. Um, shed a tear and then um, you know it was just so happy and it was just such a special moment to um, share you know 
the first Cubs World Series ring in 108 years, or ever. I don't know if they gave out rings in, right. in 08. <laughs> Who knew? Um, but to, to share it with the, the person that really taught me this game, that really that really brought baseball into my life and, and changed my life. And, and he's a doctor in California, and so every day he um, would drive home from the hospital. He'd walk in the front door. Um, he'd sit down on the couch. He'd turn on the Cubs game, and he'd put on his Cubs World Series ring with Harris on the side of it. And he would start texting me because he swore when the ring was on that we would score more runs. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, it's awkward now because now I'm with the Giants and he still does that. So in the <laughs> spring training game, he was texting me about you know whatever ha- was happening in the Cubs game. And I, I didn't really have the heart to tell him that I'm focused on other things right now. You're like, can you ask mom to text me about the Giants <laughs> right, now instead? Right. <laughs> uh, so you, you come in for an interview with Farhan last offseason. You guys didn't really know each other very well. You spent five hours with him. What impressed you most about him? from that initial meeting? Um, what impressed me most about him? His competitiveness, um, his attention to detail, uh, his vision for the future of the Giants, uh, and the opportunity uh, he gave me to hopefully build a winner in my hometown. I, I think that's a privilege. Very few people get the opportunity to do that. And uh, when I got the call to potentially interview with the Giants, um, I, I didn't really think about leaving at all. Um, I think this is probably the only job I would have taken because I was so comfortable in, in Chicago and I, I really appreciated the, the people I worked with so much um, there. Uh, but this is you know, a special opportunity for me here and, and I've so enjoyed getting to know Farhan and, and um, our vision for the Giants is, is more aligned than I even could have imagined. Um, so it's been fun to execute that with him here and, and the rest of the baseball ops staff. A lot of clubs that have the similar setup with the president of baseball operations, some teams are calling him the chief baseball officer now, uh, and a general manager, they do view it more as a collaboration than a chain of command. You talked before about mm-hmm. in Chicago, sort of that flat structure. Um, Farhan has said he views your relationship as a partnership. Was that an important part? Coming from the, the uh, culture you had in Chicago, was that an important thing for you to have coming here? Absolutely. I was a bit apprehensive about it uh, because the only uh, president GM structure that I had seen succeed was uh, Theo Jed, and that emanated from a longstanding friendship. So, you know, when you come into uh, a high pressure job like this in a major market with, you know, all these eyes on you, um, you have to know that you can really trust um, everyone around you, but especially, you know, the other side of the partnership. Um, so I made a lot of calls around the around the industry about Farhan. You know, a lot of people I trust had worked with him before, um, and they uh, were effusive in their praise of him. Uh, not just as a baseball executive and you know a brilliant individual, but um, you know the way he works with others, the way he leads others, the way he um, makes sure that his values um, dictate his actions, and and that's what really. Uh, that, along with the five-hour interview, is what um, really convinced me that this is the right opportunity for me. A lot of guests I've had on this podcast have talked about it being productive and important for team decision-makers to disagree, debate, challenge each other. Do you agree with that? 100%. I, I wouldn't have taken the job if, if I didn't uh, feel like that dynamic would be omnipresent in, in the Giants organization. That's what I, we had in Chicago. We used to have you know, drag-em-out debates about players all the time, and... 
I think that's really healthy for an organization. I think it helps um, convince others to evaluate players from different perspectives. Um, in in uh, and it also helps you um, include the people around you in the decision making process. If there's this culture of, you know, debate and challenging each other's opinions, then I think it encourages everyone to do. Um, even more work on their own to make sure that they have an informed opinion and that they're prepared to defend it um, in, in the office before you make that type of trade. And, and you know, certainly Farhan has been, been great about it here, and, and we're trying to you know bring that culture to San Francisco. The Cubs had their infamous pitch lab. Now other teams have developed similar things in their facilities. With the amount of movement there is with executives going from one team to another, how hard is it, or is it impossible? to sort of try to keep some of your secrets in-house because eventually somebody moves on and, and they'll take that to their organization. I'm sure there are things that you did in Chicago that you are bringing to the Giants. Yeah, it's, it's a great point um, because I don't actually believe in um, specific concrete competitive advantages anymore. There's so much you know executive mobility and player mobility that if um, – you stumble upon, you know, a new developmental technique or a new metric or a new way to evaluate players. Um, you're often faced with the opportunity or the the choice of, hey, do I do I shrink the circle um, to only a handful of people so that you know this doesn't leak out, and then and and do we just kind of bury it in our organization and selectively apply it to certain players to try to, um, uh, you know, lengthen the runway for this competitive advantage, or do I scale it across the organization, try to make as much of an impact on our players as possible with this new technique, um, knowing that it's going to leak out eventually. I have always, um, you know, leaned towards the latter because I believe the only real competitive advantages here are cultural. Um, how do we create a culture that just moves faster than the rest of the league? That you know adopts new techniques and shrinks the the time period from you know idea creation to deployment um, in a way that makes our players better but also in a way that convinces all of us internally that you know once we stumble upon something that has the potential to be a competitive advantage we're focusing on executing and then moving on and trying to find the next one because I think that's the only way to really you know keep a pattern of competitive advantages throughout an organization and also there are some uh, cultural residual effects of that where everyone feels empowered to come up with the next great idea because they know they're going to be taken seriously and they know that you know the executives above them are going to uh, you know bring it into the dugout as quickly as possible. I think it was at your introductory press conference where Farhan joked that the goal now is to get a ring for mom. Uh, how special would it be to be able to present her with the Giants World Series ring to go along with the Cubs one your dad has? Yeah, don't put any more pressure on me. Uh, no, that's certainly, you know she's expecting it now, right? That's certainly the goal. This organization has a long history of success and a, uh, a decorated recent history of um, you know hardware and and climbing the mountain multiple times and and developing the reputation of an organization that is going to compete for championships each and every year, and so it's. Farhan's goal, it's my goal, it's Gabe's goal to get back there, to, to move this organization in a healthy direction and, and create a window um, around a, a core of young players that hopefully will allow us to get 
you know, a ring for mom, but, you know, a ring for the city of San Francisco and, and um, a, a team that they can be very proud of year in and year out. Your Cubs actually ended their even year magic thing. It's right. 2020. It's time to start that up again. Yeah, in, in that ballpark, too. It That's was, right. I uh, was very conflicted in, in that <laughs> moment, as was uh, my family. My mom and dad were both at the game and, uh, you know, rooting for opposite outcomes. <laughs> Was, was your mom rooting for the Giants even though you were with the Cubs? You'll have to ask her. I, <laughs> I, I think so. Um, it proves that you know fandom is stronger than blood. But <laughs> is your dad going to root for the Giants now? No, he's going to root for the Cubs. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, uh, but no, it's uh, another um, uh, special opportunity for me in taking this job is I get to be closer to them. I get to spontaneously take my, my parents out to dinner, which is something I never had in my professional career. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to... Uh, making the most of those opportunities. Scott, thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Many thanks to Scott Harris for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, we're going to do something a little different as I'll host a roundtable with three Yankees executives, Kevin Reese, Matt Daly, and Dan Geis. We'll discuss the transition from playing to working in the front office, the art of scouting, Brian Cashman's greatest prank, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Stay safe. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.